0: The Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again. Everyone, happy Easter! Uh, you know it's Easter because I have a tie on, and uh, Matt has his green pants on. <laughs> I salute you, sir. It's courageous. You're pulling it off. We also have, as Scott said, our our children in the worship service with us, and they like uh, long sermons even less than the rest of you do. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and uh, then get started. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stoop down to meet us. Wherever we are, that you would step into our story. We need hope. We need your resurrection to matter. Many of us are in places of great pain, of despondency. Life is not working out the way that we expected. And we need you to enter into and plant a seed of resurrection that we can know with confidence that you are with us and that you have not left us. Others are just looking for a seed of hope anywhere, somewhere, and maybe the church holds that, and we're here exploring, and I pray that on this Easter Sunday that we celebrate in spring the beginning of new life, that you would help us to find new life maybe in an unexpected place like the church. Father, would you minister through these words, and would you draw us to yourself? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, opening day was a few days ago. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Probably not, because it's baseball, and who cares about baseball anymore? Well, I used to love baseball. And I would take the afternoon off on opening day and plop down in front of a TV set or a couple and watch as many games as I could. And then I would lose interest throughout the season because there's 162 baseball games. I mean, really? It's a little self-indulgent, don't you think? Who can pay attention to that many games that are three or four hours at once or at a time? And they consider baseball now our national pastime, and that's kind of what it feels like. It's pastime. But back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, baseball was not the pastime. It was our national obsession. And everyone stopped what they were doing during the division races, the pennant races, and finally the World Series. And in 1951, two of the teams that were meant to, poised to win, Their pennant, win the National League, was the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. But by mid-season, the Dodgers had moved so far ahead that one sports writer said that short of total collapse, there's no one that's going to catch them. But the New York Giants then started playing well and came from kind of below midpoint all the way into a tie by winning 37 of their last 44 games. So they were tied. And in that day, because it was the pennant, they played a three-game playoff. And in that playoff, the Dodgers won one and the Giants won one. So they were tied. And in the third game, the Dodgers were up in the last inning. They were three outs from winning the pennant which in those days was as big, almost, as the World Series. Three outs from winning. But the managers made a few critical mistakes, and the Giants got back into the game. They scored a few runs, and then they were down one run when Bobby Thompson came up to the plate, and he had one runner on base. And the polo grounds were packed This is where they were watching the game. It's the first ever nationally televised game in the history of baseball. And millions more were listening on the radio. Few of us were alive or old enough to watch that game or listen to that game, but if you were of age, you would have probably been tuned to this radio station. And it was in that moment that Russ Hodges makes The most famous call in sports history as Thompson hits a walk-off home run. And he says, there's a long drive. It's going to be, I believe, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. And he goes on and on, just repeating that over and over. And what it lacked in originality was made up for in just total sheer passion. And the place went totally bananas, I watched it again this morning on YouTube, which you can do, and I even got chills watching it again. And I don't care about either of those teams. The next day, the New York Daily News ran a front page article in, uh, entitled, anyone know? The Shot, shot Heard round the World. Front page written by Red Smith. That's kind of a boss name, right? Red. What's your name? My name's Red. I like that. He's considered by most people to be the best sports writer of all time, and he pens what is considered to be the best opening line of any newspaper article ever. And he says, now it is done. Now the story ends. And there's no way to tell it. The art of fiction is dead. Reality has strangled invention. Only the utterly impossible, the inexpressibly fantastic, can ever be plausible again. Welcome to the celebration of Easter. The resurrection, the future, breaking into the present, it's fantastically implausible, and yet it's cosmically significant. And if you're considering Christianity, this goes right to the center of what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And if you're an occasional attender, maybe you've given up on church a long time ago, but somehow Easter still feels a bit significant, and some part of you is wondering, what if it was really true? And if you're a regular and in-towner, we want to hopefully believe that the resurrection of Jesus is far more than just a doctrinal affirmation, but it's the beginning of a whole new way of life and a whole new world and that we stake our belonging and our future as a church upon this being true. Or what else do we have to be doing here? Why are we here? Well, I want to hit all those things in about 20 minutes or so. (laughs) Buckle up. Well, last week we looked at Jeremiah 29, which is a bit of an unusual passage for Easter, He it gives what would be to Israel some strange instructions after being taken hostage into a nation that is hostile to them and hostile to their God. He says, stay put. Don't go home. Don't long for home. In fact, pray for, care for the Babylonians. Bring God's healing presence to bear upon that city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And we asked, with that as sort of a model, for us, where religion, where Christianity is in massive decline in Europe and North America, that in a sense the church has been exiled from its previously privileged position, are there parallels to Israel's situation that we can learn from? And could this loss of cultural majority status, cultural privilege be seen not as catastrophic, but an opportunity for actual renewal, for recentering in the gospel. And recentering implies moving from something to something. It means addition by subtraction. And we said that if, a chur- if the church can look at that this as an opportunity to flourish in a new context. One of the opportunities is to be re-centered, not upon self-preservation and status, but re-centered upon God's missional heart to the world. And that He wants the church to embody His missional heart and to prosper the cities that they inhabit. And then secondly, and this is what I want to reflect on just briefly, is that in that context, one of the opportunities is a recentering of our practical hope, a recentering of a real hope in our daily lives. That perhaps the, the de Christianization of America, exile in J- Jeremiah's language, may lead us to a forced reckoning with this cultural captivity that we found the church in. And Walter Brueggemann, who is By far my favorite commentator says this in reflection on Jeremiah, the world which you have been so carefully, which has been so carefully prepared is being taken away from you by the grace of God. Meaning what? That when you live in an environment where Christianity is unquestioned as the way To come to God, where the Bible is near universally accepted as the foundational document of our country and of our moral lives, where the cultural infrastructure around us presupposes Christianity's superiority, then if you're a Christian, especially of the white male kind of Christian, then membership does have its privileges. You have a status. In our society. And being a Christian, staying a Christian in that environment is the default posture. But it's also a seedbed for a very naive faith, for a sanitized version of Christianity that's looking to maintain its privilege and its status. In Jerusalem, you see, Israel enjoyed a similar privilege. It enjoyed the reinforcement of the infrastructure that they lived in. It presumed religion. It presumed morality. They enjoyed a similar type of safety. But as we said last week, safety is dangerous. Safety is dangerous for truly following Jesus. And in Israel, their faith had withered for decades. And they had lost sight that they are utterly in need of God, utterly dependent upon Him, and they had lost their very purpose for existence. Now, Christianity, sociologists will tell us, is growing exponentially in the global south. It's growing in places of conflict. It's growing where Christianity is illicit, where you're not allowed to be a Christian. And in those same environments, we saw the early church grow. Acts documents that story of Christianity spreading through the Roman Empire in an environment that was hostile to its most foundational values and beliefs. It's exploding in the global south and in areas of poverty, but in the affluent west, as we've enjoyed generations of preferential treatment, Christianity is in steep decline. Christianity sort of functions as this superfluous addendum to who we are and how we go about life. And often Christianity operates sort of as a ward of the state. Crucifixion and resurrection in that environment often become little more than cognitive affirmations that don't really cost us that much to believe them. They don't demand anything of us. It's expected. Christianity, however, where it's flourishing, where it's almost always flourished, isn't a set of theological propositions, of cognitive assent, but it's a living response to God's grace. It's a living response to the inbreaking of God's future into our present reality. It's recognizing the resurrection with our lives. Resurrection, you see, is the announcement of new creation that one gives total allegiance to in the present world, awaiting, of course, the next. Cornel West says, despite the challenges presented by the widespread trivialization and dilution of the Christian gospel, I remain committed to its most fundamental claim. To follow Jesus is to love your way through the darkness of the world. Isn't that a great picture? Loving your way through the darkness of the world. Is that what you think of when you think of the modern American church? Loving your way through darkness. Our world feels pretty dark right now, does it not? Despite our affluence, technological advances, despite our economy kind of plugging along in this recovery, despite low unemployment, despite living in a fantastic city where young people come to retire, our world feels pretty dark our mood seems, whether you're on the political left or the political right, it seems anxious, it seems defensive, it seems edgy. The specter of racism has reared its head once again in powerful ways. We have children that are out marching because they don't feel safe in their schools. We have seen widespread toleration and cover-up of sexual assault, even within the church, and we now see this nuclear and economic brinksmanship by our leaders. And those are just the societal kind of meta-level problems and anxieties that we're dealing with. What about the personal level? What's the over-under on your body, your bank account, your relationships, your job, your life, your happiness? being where you want them to be this time next year. Nobody wants to live in anxiety. No one wants a season of trial. But sometimes what feels like dying is in fact the place of transformation. The world that you've so carefully curated is now being taken away by the grace of God because these times have a way of making us ask, what is it I'm really counting on? Do I have a foundational hope in my life that will outlast me? Do I have an orientation to the world that circumstances beyond my control cannot take away, cannot alter? Even if you're not ready this morning to call yourself a Christian, aren't you longing for something to breathe life and hope into our cultural and your existential moment? People have gathered in places like this and in ways like this for 2,000 years to profess that something has happened, something so fantastic and so unexpected And so transcendent that it gives us reason to hope that the darkness won't have the last word, that our anxiety points to something that's real and that we can't ignore, but we don't have to live in that anxiety. So fantastic that we can believe that our past trauma, our past failure, our past loss, our abuse doesn't have to be the end of our story. There's one on whom you see that the sorrows of the world fell upon, crashed upon with all of their fury. And yet he walked out of the tomb saying to two anxious, scared women, do not be afraid, but go and tell my disciples that I will join them. In Galilee. You see, because Jesus got up and walked, a whole new reality has broken in. A whole new manner of being human has invaded. But to see it, you have to question conventional wisdom, you have to learn to mistrust religions of power. And control. You have to learn to mistrust churches that hide and aren't authentic and cover things that should be brought out into the open. And you have to die, friends, you have to die to those hopes that are vulnerable to circumstances. Easter. Only makes sense, you see, to those of us that have ashes on our heads. The road to Easter goes through Ash Wednesday's marks, and they go, it goes through Good Friday's dying, addition by subtraction. Jerusalem existed as a real place, an inhabited reality. But it also existed as a wish, as an ideal, representing something that wasn't, something that could only come. But sometimes, you see, that boundary between image and idol can become blurred and compressed and become indistinguishable. You see, we can mistake the sign for the thing signified. And that was going on in Israel And they had to experience this succession of very bad kings in order to deliver them from this idolatry of the king, of monarchy. That if only we could have a powerful king who wielded the sword on our behalf, then I could be safe. Then I would know I belong. They had to understand through this cycle of terrible kings that a human king was far too inadequate to hold the weight of their desires to fulfill their real hopes. The city that they inhabited, no matter how glorious, no matter how safe, no matter how familiar, no matter how cool, like Portland, would never be home enough to deal with their cosmic homesickness. Christianity, as we finish, is lived out in a real place, a real city, an earthly city. And Jeremiah says, care for that city. Stay, raise houses, plant gardens, raise houses, build houses, plant gardens, raise families, Pray for the prosperity of the city, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. What Jeremiah is doing and what Jesus does as he comes and for 30 years works a trade is that it validates and it sanctifies the vocations, earthly vocations, as a place where God is present and where he dwells. He makes your jobs holy, and he makes our city holy as a holy place that's not to be despised. Christianity is not just waiting until the city is evaporated and we get carried off to heaven. The city is real and it's a place to inhabit. Resurrection hope doesn't diminish the reality of the city. It doesn't whisk us away out of the world's problems, but actually further in. It gives us a reason to care for the darkness, and the people that are underneath it. You see, we are not whisked away. We don't work our way up, but God descends down. He descends down first in the person of His Son, Jesus, in the incarnation. And then His holiness descends once again in this image of the city, the new Jerusalem. Not the symbol, not the sign, but the real thing. And certainly St. John in Revelation had Jeremiah's vision in mind as he had his own. And he talks at the very end, Then I saw a city, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven of God to inhabit this our earthly reality, and to transform it into something that we could never imagine. And that is built upon Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, Jeremiah says, Inhabit the city, love the city, pray for the city, serve the city, but never mistake it for home. Its greatest delights are only hints at what will be. And its deepest sorrows are meant to make us sure that we never fully settle, but that we're always leaning into a future reality that Jesus' resurrection points to. In the meantime, in the meantime, face down your sin. Face down your shadows and the sorrows in your life as if they've been finally defeated. Ask, how do we love our way through the darkness of the world for its sake? How do you love your way through the sorrows and the darkness of the broken relationships that you inhabit for the good of that person, for their spiritual liberation? Maybe that sounds far-fetched. Maybe that sounds odd, maybe a little outlandish, and my response is, I don't care. (laughs) So what? Of course it does. Would anything worth living and dying for be worth it if it didn't sound a little bit crazy? All of our best stories are resolved by something implausible. All of our best stories are resolved by something unexpected and often something from outside of the world. And haven't we tried everything inside it? Haven't we tried just about everything that we can conjure up? How likely is it really that you're going to discover in your own initiative and in your own sophistication and your own intelligence that you're going to discover? the cure to your own cosmic homesickness? How likely is it really that your aspirations, your achievements will create this surplus of meaning that's going to not be eradicated by your dying? Maybe it's in, in, the very implausibility of God taking on flesh, of dying and rising for His lost but His loved creation that makes it so beautiful and so believable. Because when what we perceive as real fails us so consistently, maybe what's too good to be true actually is. Maybe that's what's more real. Because if the resurrection is true, then reality has strangled invention. There's no better story. Only the utterly impossible, the inexpressibly fantastic can ever be plausible again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would deliver us into that realm of impossibility, And we look at our own lives and we see ourselves stuck in habits that we can't change. We see ourselves in relationships that seem to never get better. We see ourselves in a church that seems to just keep middling along, not having the resources that we think we need. We see marriages that are on the brink of failure. Father, I pray that you would, through your resurrection, would you plant seeds of resurrection in all of these places, and maybe they are not fundamentally fixed in the next week, but would you do your work, and would you help us to be patient and help us to lean into that future world and grab onto pieces of it to bring into ours. Father, I pray that we would have hope that works in that way and that we would not lose hope in that reality, becoming more and more real to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come in our midst and make it real. In Jesus' name, amen.